Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. This is our second Love Stories episode, and I really cannot wait for you to hear my conversation with Dr. Lindsay Kite and Dr. Lexi Kite. They are co-authors of an incredible book, More Than a Body, Your Body is an Instrument, Not an Ornament. They both receive PhDs in the study of women's body image and have become leading experts in body image resilience and media literacy. They are also identical twins. Ever since I heard about the Kite Sisters and their book, I've been wanting to connect with them. Their mission is to educate women about the negative messages they receive and internalize about their bodies, and it's enriched by their experience growing up as identical twins, constantly being compared, confused, and mirrored by one another. Their work centers on the truth that positive body image isn't believing your body looks good. It's knowing your body is good regardless of how it looks. The Kites have been featured in a variety of national media outlets, including New York Times, Boston Globe, Slate, Glamour, and Teen Vogue. I wanted to bring them into the love story space, not only to discuss their research, but to explore their relationship with one another. You don't have to be a twin or even a sister to appreciate this conversation about bodies, about boundaries, and about how we grow alongside the people who are closest to us. This ended up being a fascinating and important discussion that I know you're going to enjoy. Hello, Dr. Lexi and Dr. Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Hi, we are so happy to be here too. We really are. Thank you so much. This is a different kind of an interview for all three of us. And I love that. I love conversations that we enter into where we're not quite sure where it's going to take us, but that we're here and we're present and we're bringing our curiosity along with us. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, we don't normally just talk about our twin lives. So this is very interesting for us too. Yeah, exactly. 
I think that we discovered each other's work on Instagram, good old Instagram, and I'm so touched and so moved by the work that you are doing around body image and supporting girls and women. And there's a lot of elements of your story that I think intersect with different parts of of my journey along the way. And so then it was sort of like bringing together a, a sisterly relationship, a twin relationship, a fascination with body image. I was like, okay, I got to get to know these two women. These are women that I <laughs> need to connect with. Awesome. We felt the same. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Lindsay sent me, I think, an interview you did and said, this woman is amazing. We need to get to know Dr. Alexandra Solomon. So it is an (laughs) honor to be with you today. (laughs) Here we are. Here we are. So on the Reimagining Love podcast, we do different kinds of episodes. And one of the episodes that we do, which is the conversation that we're entering into, is a love stories one. We're really, you know, the two of you are clearly experts and you are researchers and you are speakers and writers and teachers. And that's and that's central, and I imagine that's going to be part of what we're exploring. But but really, right, you are here to be with me to look at what it's been like to be twins, to be sisters, to navigate separateness and togetherness along the way as you created a business together. And there's a lot to be learned from how the two of you have kind of handled closeness and separateness in this relationship of yours. So start us at the beginning. I would love to just sort of hear a bit about the family that you grew up in and kind of your early experiences. Kind of locate us in time and space, please. Sure. Yeah. We we were born in 1985. We grew up in Idaho Falls, Idaho, so southeastern Idaho. We just had one brother and a pretty middle class kind of average white upbringing. Mm-hmm. We came from a pretty conservative religious environment. So our family was involved in church and community. We were competitive swimmers growing up. That was a really big part of our upbringing, starting in swimming lessons from the time we were like five years old. And as identical twins, I think Lexi and I just had a very kind of interesting and in some ways unique growing up experience together, side by side. We were the twins. When people Mm -hmm. would come over and knock on the door and ask if we could play, it was, are the twins home? Can the twins play? We just felt like such a unit for so much of our lives and continue to feel that way in some ways. Of course, we've branched off a bit more in our later years, but growing up, we were very much just side by side and that affected every aspect of our lives. Oh, absolutely. We were identical. People couldn't tell us apart. We joked that our dad couldn't tell us apart some of the time. And (laughs) that was used for good and for ill. I think in some ways, the fact that we were compared to each other caused us to be ultra competitive against each other. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, we excelled because of that. We were spelling bee champions, taking turns every year on who won the spelling bee. Lindsay won more spelling bees than I did. I'll, I'll give you that credit. Lindsay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you hung in there, Lexi. You were, yeah, you yeah. were a, a force. Yeah. Yes. We competed against each other for the jump rope competition and the hoop shoot basketball competition. We ran against each other for class president in middle school and high school. We, in many ways, were so competitive and that competitive edge helped us excel. But when it came to our relationship with our own bodies, it really illuminated the fact that we felt very defined by how we appeared. That started out as identical twins looking so similar when people had to figure out how to tell us apart. And so 
immediately upon seeing us, people would scan our bodies up and down. They'd look closely at our faces to determine differences. There was always a winner and a loser. You know, there's always kind of a value judgment placed. It was... Lindsay has the fatter face. Lexi has the crooked teeth. Lexi has a mole on her nose. We'll call her Frexy Lexi. It was going and getting weighed at the doctor's office. And I remember weighing a half pound less than Lindsay and taunting her about it. And we were Mm -hmm. like in elementary school. Yeah. We would have been like 10 years old at that time. We grew up in an environment that was like high achieving. Our parents were our biggest cheerleaders and extremely supportive of us. But also somewhat perfectionistic, it feels like. Mm-hmm. We were always aiming to do better and better. And we had the competition right by our side where we were being compared internally, but also externally by every person who met us or when they would just see us for the first time walking into school every day. And so it was just this constant analysis and we were projecting that onto each other. So we thought of each other and still sometimes think of each other as a mirror to ourselves. Yeah. I look at Lexi and I think, oh, okay, so that must be how I look from this angle or in this outfit or with my hair this way. Mm -hmm. And of course, we don't look exactly the same anymore. But growing up was very much this analyzing each other in a very critical way and projecting those feelings and those judgments back onto our own bodies. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine what it was like when you were little, little girls and you had this identity. You were a we, you were the twins. And so I imagine that there's a way that inside each of your minds, inside of each of your psychology, you were much less an I than you were a we. Do you think, did the world teach you? Like as, as the world tried to figure out which is Lexi and which is Lindsay, as the world, as you watched the world try to make sense of how to tell the two of you apart, do you imagine that was like when the two of you also started to realize we are separate? Like we, there is a, because you were taking in messages, like you, your first experience was womb mates. You were like in there together, right? You were, and then you were the twins. And then you watched the world try to wrestle with who, who each of you were, how to separate you, how to tell you apart. Yeah, Yeah. it definitely created, I think, just some identity issues for both of us. I remember thinking, even in middle school, that I must be the most generic looking person in the whole world, that no one could pick me out of a lineup. And it it definitely stemmed from this idea that Lexi and I were indistinguishable from each other. Even when we felt like we looked and acted very different, other people just didn't perceive those differences. Mm -hmm. And even to this day, when I talk about my childhood, I say we to people who don't even know that I have an identical twin. So there is very much this, we were one unit And it's hard to tell if it was nature or nurture that created this feeling of being so intertwined and so, you know, one with each other. What do you think, Mm -hmm. Lex? In some ways, it definitely feels like a soul connection. Like, we're not the kind of twins that always loved each other and were best friends. Like, we ended up having the same friend group. And clearly, you know, we have tried so hard to not be such twins, but we have lived such identical lives in some ways. Mm -hmm. In other ways, we have always felt a deep sense of knowing about each other, that we can understand each other with very few words. We have evolved politically, religiously, socially, intellectually alongside each other without even having to say it out loud to compare notes in many ways. When we were applying for college for master's degrees and PhDs, we were at Utah State University for our undergrads, trying not to be such twins. 
so competitive, so deeply competitive at the time that we weren't living together. We weren't really talking to each other. We'd fought over boys, over dating, over... um, Over clothes, over living together. Ridiculous stuff looking back. Yes. And so we told our mom, we weren't going to tell each other where we were applying for school. And I remember like doing some digging on a really good journalism program, wanting to study media literacy, the same thing Lindsay wanted to do, and ended up applying to the University of Utah and then finding out Lindsay did too. And they brought us in together. We had kind of dual fellowships. And so we were just melded back into one again. And that was when we started using our powers for good instead of evil. (laughs) (laughs) That was the turning point. We joined forces. It was easier at that point to just say, okay, we like the same things and we're good at the same things. So we may as well just work together instead of fight each other. Yes. Right. You had a chapter in college where you tried to row against the current and kind of make your own path so much so that you didn't even tell each other where you were applying to graduate school. No, we had such an antagonistic relationship those throughout college, I would say, like almost every year of college, we just didn't get along very well. We lived in the same room for the first two years with each other. That was a huge mistake. It was just for cost savings, but it was such a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And it just led to such a wedge between us where we had separate friend groups, boyfriends who had never talked to each other. And, and that led to going into master's degrees without even wanting to tell the other person what our plans were, but ending Mm -hmm. up doing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, it was our body image. It was our relationship with our own bodies that both divided us and then brought us back together again. Yes. Because it was our freshman year of college. We write and talk a lot about this very twin-like experience we had where we were taking different sections of the same class. It was for journalists. It was a class in media literacy, being able to uh, read and comprehend why media is created the way it is, especially how it represents gender. And I remember being in my section of that class, the same semester as Lindsay, sitting in that classroom and just getting goosebumps, hearing the first day, what an impact it made on women to see our reality so skewed in our representations in media that Lindsay and I grew up never seeing a fat woman or even a slightly curvy woman represented positively in any show, any magazine, anything, anywhere. We'd never seen anybody that looked like us. Never seen one person with cellulite or stretch marks represented positively. We felt so disgusting, so particularly embarrassing. You know, the two of us, we could bond Mm -hmm. over that. And yet we're Mm -hmm. also disgusted seeing each other's bodies because Mm -hmm. it reminded us of how bad and wrong we thought we were. And it was in that college classroom that I felt such a distinct impression that I needed to heal this relationship with my own body because it had been skewed. This was not a normal or natural state for me to feel so defined and confined by my body. I went home to our shared dorm room, talked to Lindsay about it. She said, I had the exact same experience in my class. And we kind of began bonding over this thing that has become our life's work 15 years later or what? More than 15 years later. Yeah. 18 years later. Yeah. Yeah. That light bulb moment in college, like it's so, when I read that in your book, it's so landed for me. That was my, you know, I went into college, University of Michigan, 
hellbent on a pre-med curriculum. Like I literally saw college as like a means to an end. It was just the four years I had to do until medical schools like let me at them, you know? And it was sophomore year, fall semester, I took a a women's studies class, women's studies 101. And I just sat there with my jaw on the floor, goosebumps everywhere. Like what? It was like being cracked open. I remember Jean Kilborn, right? um, Reviewed your wonderful book, which we are going to put in the show notes and shout from the rooftops because it's a magnificent book that everybody should have and cherish. But I remember watching Jean Kilborn's films in women's studies and just having my mind blown and then pivoting and being like, this is what I have to study, gender and power and race and relationship. And I was just, I was done for much the same way that the two of you were. It's those, those pivotal like early emerging adult experiences where you realize that the water you've been swimming in, someone tells you as the fish that this is the water you've been swimming in for all of these years. Yes. Yep. You didn't even know there was water. That that was exactly our experience of learning something that resonated so deeply, really sparked something. And and it was feminism for me as well, freshman year of college, learning in a women's studies class and even going back and telling Lexi and telling my mom that I'm a feminist. I didn't realize it, but I'm a feminist and got pushback from both of them about, you know, what are you talking about? Of, you know, <laughs> having your what Rush Limbaugh calls feminists. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> and so we both have found, I think, transformative knowledge at different times and shared it with each other. And of course, there was no question that it would resonate just as deeply with either one of us, but it's cool to introduce things to each other sometimes. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. Go back a little bit to when you were little girls and, you know, you're competing in the jump rope contest and the spelling bee contest. How did you talk with each other about the competition? Like I know that during college there was conflict in your relationship, but how did you do competition when you were little? What did that look like? Hmm. That's a good question. It's hard for me to even think back on how we did it because I don't think we ever questioned that there was any other way. We would help each other with the studying process. I remember we both had our scripts spelling bee books and we would ask each other the words over and over and over again for hours every week. And so it wasn't like a competitive process until we actually got into the spelling bee. And then we were excited for each other when we each would spell a word correctly or, you know, in swimming, if Lexi would be faster in a race or whatever, we were excited for each other. And it wasn't necessarily, it was kind of as if our performance, both of us was a reflection on the other one. Yes. Positively, Uh, as opposed to us being in conflict with each other. Like if Lexi won, 
people perceived that as me winning. Like there wasn't a difference to other people. And I think we cared a lot about what other people thought of us. And so it was kind of just as good if Lexi won. Obviously, I took a lot of personal pride if I beat Lexi in something. That was you know, something I would hold over her head and like keep in my pride for the rest of my life. Yeah. But it was still really positive to see Lexi win or achieve something because it reflected very well on me. Yeah, I agree. I think we had not differentiated when we were young yeah. to the point that a win for Lindsay was still a win for me. And in some ways, our entire lives, we've been able to be more high achieving because we have worked as a unit. Right. We would not be able to run the nonprofit and also have demanding full-time jobs outside of it mm-hmm. and do all that we do without any help if we weren't able to work together to fill in where the other person is missing as I've had babies. Yeah. Lindsay has been able to take over the work so that there was never a stall in what we were able to do. Yeah. We've been able to kind of help each other ebb and flow in a way that has definitely worked in our favor. Yeah. It's turned into a complimentary relationship. Thank goodness. That's right. That's right. Well, I, but even I hear that it was even complimentary when you were, and it's interesting because when you were little, it was complimentary because, because you really weren't differentiated enough to take a win personally or take a loss or something to like make the other person feel badly about because it still was that we, that we won. So there was a way that even back then, right. So a win for one of you was a win for both of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know that that translated back at home because our mom would say we fought like crazy. Yeah. And there was a lot of, I, I don't know if it's like hostility between us, but there was tension. There was always tension and there's still tension sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think being so close and feeling like we're so similar, then the tension is heightened when we disagree on something or when we don't share the same view or strength in a certain area it heightens the conflict between us because it's like, wait, why don't you understand what I'm saying right now? Why don't you understand my perspective? Mm-hmm. And so in the house as kids, I think it was the same type of dynamic where we felt that competition with each other because maybe it's because we we didn't feel like such a unit at home. We felt like just individuals in the house and were recognized as individuals in our house. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Outwardly, we got along and to the people we yeah. cared about seeing us outside of our home, we were a unit because they couldn't tell us apart anyway. So a win for one was a win for both. It doubled our ability to do things. But at home, there was always tension. I always felt like my parents loved Lindsay more than me mm-hmm. because Lindsay was less difficult, was yeah. less problematic. Mm-hmm. I was perceived as the angry twin, and so I became the angry twin. That, or vice versa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, both. But I mean, that definitely happened. We've always been in competition over like parental and family love. and it's- Yeah, who's better friends with our little brother? Who does he like better? Yeah. There's always a question over who's closer with who. And it's easy to gang up with somebody. Like in public, it's really nice to have your twin sister. You're never alone when you go to go to school, when you go to a new environment, some other organization that you're involved in. We always had a built-in buddy and you could yep. really take advantage of that. And that was always helpful. But mm-hmm. at home, we were on our own and it was nice to 
flex that independence and show how we were different and kind of take advantage of it in some ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, right. And that your personalities are different, different enough to people who know you well, that mm-hmm. people who know you well perceived Lexi. So the story was that Lexi was the angry twin. Mm-hmm. And Lindsay was what? <laughs> who were you in the family then? A little more peaceful. I don't know. There, there's always kind of the thing we joke with Lexi about that she's more dramatic than me. Mm-hmm. She was always using the British accent when we were really little. She was always a little extra, like a little louder and <laughs> about things for both good and for bad. Mm-hmm. And so then, yeah, this definitely carried with us into our school years where people would say, Lexi's the outgoing twin and Lindsay's the shy twin because there's always this binary. It's yes. always a dichotomy. And I was never shy. I wasn't a shy person, but people would say I was shy because Lexi was outgoing. Mm -hmm. And that made me so mad. I was so Mm -hmm. annoyed by that all the time. And then I felt like I had to prove, no, I'm not shy. I'm outgoing Mm -hmm. too, just because I'm not, you know, like Lexi doesn't mean I'm not also outgoing. It's that point of reference idea that you were saying earlier that, you know, one of you has the crooked teeth and the other one has the whatever more round face Yeah, that when you compare, right, and on a personality dimension, I mean, put any two people together and you can identify the one who's more outgoing and the one who's less outgoing. But how interesting, Lindsay, that you, right, you might not have scored particularly high on an assessment of shyness, but just relative to Lexi, who you were always relative to, you came across as shy. Exactly. We set the barometer. I was just angrier than Lindsay. (laughs) That's right. You were not particularly rageful, but just in your home, you were more like, right, if you had to kind of like keep a running tally of who was flying off the handle, you would have had. Lexi would fight with mom about what Mm -hmm. to wear and she wanted to wear the same thing every day and you know and then I could kind of bond with mom over oh isn't Lexi so weird that she wants to wear that every day you know and Mm -hmm. it helps set us apart in our differences even more and that was all body image stuff that yeah that was the stuff that hit in second grade when I remember we had a very naturally thin mom I heard her say things about her body that made me realize people were looking at my body And it made me feel super self-conscious. And I found a sweatshirt and leggings that I felt okay in. And I thought I needed to wear them every day. And that Mm -hmm. is something that I have dealt with my whole life, where when I'm feeling a real burden, when I'm feeling really self-conscious of my body, I don't want to wear other clothes than the few things I feel comfortable in because I have control over that. And I remember fighting about that in second grade with you and mom, because you guys would team up that I was, how weird that Lexi wants to wear the same thing every day, Mm -hmm. where internally I was feeling bad because I think I was probably a little fatter than you. And you and mom could bond over thinking that I was weird when internally I was just didn't know how to articulate that I was struggling with my body image and I was eight. You know, mm-hmm. and that was just the beginning. That was the mm-hmm. beginning of us wanting to be loved. You know, when we when we talk about body image and the struggle with wanting to lose weight, wanting to be more beautiful, constantly wanting to fix your body in order to fix your life in quotes, all that comes down to is a wanting, a desire to be loved. Yep. To be accepted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I knew very early on, I learned early on that I would be more valuable and more lovable, more capable of being loved if I conformed to beauty ideals that I could not even attain. I worked my entire life to try to obtain those just to feel loved. 
And that started in second grade by wearing the same thing because I felt okay in it. And that was, that divided us in a lot of ways too. You had a very early adaptation that you didn't even have language for. You just knew this horrible feeling subsides for a bit when I wear this outfit. That was all you knew. You didn't know how to say it to anybody. You just knew this is what I have to do. It was just a coping mechanism. We talk about it in body image as like, the fight or flight in body image is the hiding and the fixing. You either opt out of opportunities, experiences, events, you hide yourself because you don't want to be looked at or Mm -hmm. you fix yourself constantly fix in quotes because it doesn't actually fix the body image problem. That's an inside job. Mm -hmm. But you think that if you can gain some control over your appearance, that you will earn yourself love, attention, validation, popularity. None of that is actually true. Mm -hmm. And we tried to, to exert that control over each other's bodies because we felt like each other's bodies were a reflection of each of us. I remember even being in college and people couldn't tell us apart, even people who we thought should be able to tell us apart because we thought we looked so different. And Lexi was thinner than me. And she was particularly annoyed when people couldn't tell us apart because it's like, oh, you know, they must think I look fat too. And so there was kind of this attempt to convince me that I should lose weight. And it I didn't need much convincing. It was our whole right. culture that we were surrounded by that laid the groundwork for that. But I think the twin thing just added pressure to say, you're representing me. Yes. And if we are going to be working together and being social together, showing up together in college and trying to be cool and loved and accepted, then you better get to my level and we better approve of each other. I remember that. I forgot about that completely. And I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Like that makes me emotional because that is so violent, you know, when we hear from the outside world, how disgusting we are from every, you know, even people that love us that are inadvertently saying fat phobic things or, or objectifying things to know that like what, 12 years ago or so that I said that to you in the beginning of us trying to learn this stuff, it makes me sick. And we're both dealing with our own internalized fat phobia still, you know, like that's that's a constant battle. But the idea that my own feelings about my body could be reflected on Lindsay Mm -hmm. because I couldn't differentiate enough because we were, we had these plans that we'd start this nonprofit, that we'd start, you know, doing this speaking thing down the line and, and write stuff down the line. And I thought that and how could people take us seriously? Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And it, it's still something we face. People will continue to objectify us and throw out our words and not listen to our research and what we have to say that's backed up with facts and truth and reason yeah. because they think both ends of the spectrum. Right. You're too you're right. too fat or you're just jealous. You're jealous of beautiful women or right. you're too beautiful and too young to understand this. Why would That's I right. listen to you? That's right. Yeah. First of all, Lindsay, I so appreciate you bringing that story up from college. And Lexi, I appreciate your willingness to like bear witness to it and offer that apology for something that you, of course, you were at risk of doing to Lindsay, what you were doing to yourself. Yeah. You know, it's the painful, like double edge of the sword, right? Like the beautiful part of this twinship is the complementarity in the way that you each elevated each other to excellence then and now. And then the underbelly of it is like, if you represent me in those ways, then you also represent me in these ways. It's like the double edges of that same dynamic of the closeness. Yeah. It yeah. is. 
And I think we both care about each other's perception of the other one more than anything. Like I care more about what Lexi thinks about me than anyone in the world. And I don't know if that'll ever go away. And so that can be used obviously for good or evil. I think we've learned over the last 12 years to use it for good and to be careful and understanding with each other, knowing the context of how women are objectified in this culture and how that has so seeped into our own self-perceptions and our perceptions of each other and the, the harmful ideals that we will hold up against ourselves and each other. So becoming cognizant of that has helped our relationship in incredible ways. I can't remember the last time either of us insulted what the other one looked like, even though mm-hmm. we can pick out a handful of really painful examples from our teenage and you know early 20s years. Yeah. And we know now that despite bodies changing, you know, Lexi's had a couple babies. I gained weight right alongside Lexi having babies. I don't know why, but I just did. <laughs> Damn twin thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like we're getting older. There's just like every right. other human in the world, things are changing. And I think with that and with our understanding through all of our research and working with so many hundreds of women through these same things, we have so much compassion for each other and for ourselves. And it's become so humanizing just to know that, yeah, Lexi's just like me. And a lot of people see her as a reflection of me, but she's also her own being separate from me who struggles with her own things. And I fully understand them. And, Mm -hmm. And of course, we forgive each other. I forgive Lexi for any harm that she inflicted upon me without knowing. And, and I would hope she would do the same for me as well. Oh, totally. I think it's been, so this, this light bulb in our research, I realized it, I think during my master's degree and then dug in, in the PhD was this idea that this experience that Lindsay and I had shared our whole lives of having our identities literally doubled. Like I see Lindsay and she's a reflection of me and I critically look at her as I see myself, this mirror, that is this thing that we all experience, especially women. A lot of men do not understand this, but it's called self-objectification. It's the idea that as you grow up in an objectifying environment that treats you and tells you in a million ways that you are a body first and a person second, that as you maintain and control and fix your body, that's how you will earn your humanity. That leads to self-objectification. Self-objectification is this doubling. It's this idea that you live and you picture yourself living. You picture yourself like a critical twin would look at herself, but it all happens inside your own mind in this Mm -hmm. kind of abstract anxiety cloud we all live in. And it Mm -hmm. manifests itself in this kind of mental checklist that as you're leaving the house, as you're sitting alone in a room that you're looking down at your body thinking, I need to cross my legs in this way so that it hides this fat and makes me look better even just to myself alone. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. do these things to monitor and control and evaluate our appearances constantly, just like we have a twin. And when I learned about that self-objectification thing, it was this like light bulb moment where Lindsay and I realized this thing we had experienced, we could articulate to other people because we're not alone in this. It's not a twin thing. It's an everybody thing. We all have the critical twin. I think Lexi and I both felt so unique in thinking that we were extremely self-aware, extremely self-conscious of our appearances because we were twins and had been so compared and kind of ogles all throughout our lives. But in reality, so many women feel this way, especially women who are kind of perfectionists or high achievers or just growing up in an objectifying culture that treats you as most important for your beauty first and foremost. And we felt like we were so unique in just having this constant sense of 
Who's looking at me? How do I look? I'm monitoring. I'm fixing just that mental task list always going off. It turns out that's extremely relatable to so many women. And we think that it's just like a normal, natural thing, but it's not. It is learned behavior to Mm -hmm. be constantly monitoring and evaluating your body from the outside as if you are a stranger to yourself, looking in at your body, like you're that critical twin watching yourself and changing the way you move and behave in relation to how you feel about how you look. This self-objectification, I think, is what really holds us back. And once Lexi and I identified that for ourselves and knew that it wasn't just this natural state of being really multitaskers and really self-aware, it was actually something that was harming us and a a bit soul-sucking, draining your mental and physical energy all the time. Mm -hmm. That was a huge step forward for us and also helping other women to recognize when it was happening and how to shut it down, I think is really key in this conversation. Yeah, it's been revolutionary. It's revolutionary. And and it can't start until and unless you notice that there is that self-narration going on, that self-objectification going on. And as you said, it's very likely that there are people listening to, to our conversation right now who are just now having that light bulb moment of like, oh my gosh, I do that to myself. Because we, right, when we talk about body image, we talk about sort of like feelings about our bodies or thoughts about our bodies, but you're talking about this like actual kind of mentalization, the way that we mentalize and we twin ourselves and we are kind of watching and imagining how we look from the outside. We talk about this, um, sex therapists talk about this when it happens in the bedroom as being spectatoring, yep. right? Sort of watching yep. ourselves as we're in an erotic and intimate moment where part only part of us gets to experience the pleasure. Only part of us gets to experience the moment. And another part of us has to monitor. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Which limits the pleasure. You're not actually fully experiencing and connecting and having the feelings that you could be having because you're watching yourself from the outside, making it into a spectator sport for a man to enjoy, not for Mm -hmm. a woman to enjoy. Yes. Mm -hmm. That gets carried on throughout the rest of our lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In our work, that was central to our own healing to embody ourselves, like to really reclaim that this body is mine. It's not Lindsay's. It is nobody else's. No matter what words they say to define me, my body is mine. And despite the fact that it doesn't fit the ideals that I had always hoped it would, my body is an incredible instrument. It is not an ornament, you know, back to our, <laughs> our mantra. That is such a revolutionary thing to embody yourself again. And when women learn to realize that they have, we have all twinned ourselves, we all have this mental image of ourselves that isn't only, you know, painful once you realize it, but is literally halting your potential, your happiness, Mm -hmm. your health in conceivable and identifiable ways. When you can name that thing, it is an absolute game changer. And so one thing that I think twins in particular might struggle with is the idea that you can begin to heal your own self-objectification But when you are in contact, when you're with your own twin, sometimes that self-objectification is exacerbated. Mine is. Like Lindsay and I live on different coasts now. She lives in New York City. I live in Salt Lake City. And when we get back together, I find that my self-objectification kind of ramps up Hmm. because I'm seeing Lindsay. And I have to consciously re-heal that part of myself and work through our strategies for resilience just every time. Do you find that lens or is that just me? No, I definitely find myself doing a little more self-comparison 
especially when we have some of the same clothes and you'll walk into the room with the same clothes that I've been wearing. And I think, oh, okay, I've never seen those pants from the back. (laughs) That must be what they look like. And so, yeah, it is this feeling of like, I'm looking at her. Do I look like that? Should I look like that? It it does heighten the self-objectifying sometimes. Yeah. I feel like I... Um, I was and getting ready for this conversation. I was thinking about, you know, my own relationships where I am most at risk of feeling self-conscious or doing some of those, the either hiding or fixing strategies. And I know when I'm with my family back in Michigan with my siblings, I do like, I will think to myself, how did I look the last time they saw me and how do I look now? And sometimes it's about, it's interesting as I move into my late forties, it's sometimes about how my body looks and it's sometimes about wondering what signs of aging they see in me that they didn't notice last time. And so it's, it is, I notice it around my family or I have the same group of girlfriends. Well, two of us in kindergarten and we picked up two more girls in fifth grade and the four of us are going to be together for the first time in a couple of years. And I know going, you know, we're a few days from that reunion and I am aware, I'm noticing the thoughts in my head of how will they perceive me and what will they think of me and it is so there is something about separation and reunion or people who knew us back then um yeah. where mm-hmm. I, I notice a spike also in my own self-objectification I can only imagine it's that much more intensified if there was somebody moving through the world who looks just like me I it would be that much more intense I'm sure oh yeah yeah I'm glad that you're Lexi I'm glad that you're like calling forth the twins of the world and kind of inviting this kind of just awareness and attention and maybe healing, like maybe healing yeah. conversations between between twins that maybe they haven't talked about this before. Absolutely. And I, you're so right. And research backs up the fact that we do compare ourselves more to peers, to people that have known us in the past. Yes. I think that one thing, as you know, that can help that is is being able to recognize through self-compassion, recognizing our common humanity. Like Mm. when your anxiety gets ramped up, seeing people that take you back to that self-conscious child or that you're likely to compare yourself to because you're similar, you haven't seen them in a while. Of course, this is what comes up in a world where we see bodies first and people second. It is really helpful for me. And one thing I do with Lindsay is to be able to practice that compassion for her too, that no matter what state we're in, no matter if your friend has lost weight or gained weight, gotten a breast augmentation, she has Mm -hmm. new Botox, whatever the thing is, you can still practice that self-compassion that tells you that you are more than a body and she Mm -hmm. is too. Mm -hmm. And she's doing her best. Every single time she's doing her best. There's no room for shame or blame Mm -hmm. in this world that is constantly causing us to have to think about our bodies at the expense of everything else about us, our very humanity. But that I think when I see Lindsay and when that does trigger my self-comparison and self-objectification, lately I like to think about it as an opportunity to heal myself a little bit. It brings up the trigger that gives me the opportunity to grow in the ways I need to. It shows me, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. we talk about that as body image disruptions and this whole process of building your body image resilience. And so going home and seeing family or friends that you haven't seen in a long time, going through an illness, a breakup, we blame our bodies for so many different things that we go through as women. And um, sometimes feel that the negative things we go through are deserved because we just didn't have our bodies quite under control. That's right. 
And all of these things prompt in us a body image disruption. So you might, your normal state of body image, how you feel about your body might be kind of uncomfortable. It might be fairly negative. You might describe your body in negative ways. And that may be normal, but we don't realize how painful and uncomfortable it is because it is such a normative state of discontent, as scholars call it, for women to just feel pretty crappy about our bodies in this culture. And then something happens where we'll go through some experience where the self-comparison is flared up, that self-objectification is brought to the surface when we're back with our family of origin or friends we haven't seen, or we run into an ex that we haven't seen for a while, or go through his you know, new girlfriend's Instagram 150 <laughs> weeks deep. We've all done these things. And so the feelings of shame are really at the surface, and yeah. we cope in ways that often make us feel worse. We cling to our comfort zones by hiding and fixing our bodies. We'll hurt ourselves and sink deeper into shame with self-harm and addictive behaviors, substance use disorders, all of those types of things. And yet when we do face a disruption, it can be that immediate reminder that we can practice some techniques to actually heal ourselves and reconnect with our own physical bodies as our homes, Mm -hmm. as opposed to these burdens that we carry around and are in need of fixing all the time. And that in itself, I think, is such a huge ability to be a turning point for people. Yes. Well, what you're the way you're describing it, Lindsay, is that there's many, many turning points. These body image disruptions, as you call them, are these moments in time where we're kind of smacked again with, aha, here's me, here's a chance for me to look at my relationship with my body. And then we've got avenues, like with the awareness that your work helps us develop, we can see avenues emerging in front of us. We can do the same old thing, which is kick into fix it mode, or we can kick into hiding mode, or we can take that moment to be a massive, like in that moment of self-objectification, in that moment of disruption, we have a chance then to move into self-compassion and to just be so wildly grateful for this body. I mean, this body of mine has, and, and your body and your body, these bodies have been with us from our very, very, very first breath. So we can take it, that moment of disruption can be like a reclamation, right? It can be a mm-hmm. moment of gratitude. I love that. I yeah, love that. It can that. be a catalyst. Yes. Catalyst, mm-hmm. a reminder to get back inside your own body instead of watching it like a stranger from the outside. It can Mm -hmm. happen over and over again. Like we talk about the work that we do, body image resilience is in contrast to this idea of body positivity, where in body positivity, it's like, you're beautiful. Everybody's beautiful. All bodies are perfect. And what we're trying to do is to get the focus off of the appearance of bodies and put it back into our bodies as instruments, not perfect instruments by any means, not, you know, perfectly prime functioning instruments, but still our vehicles, our instruments that we inhabit, that are part of us, that we were literally born into. And when we can get back inside our own bodies and see them as prioritize how we experience the world instead of how the world experiences us, that's how we can really gain such greater fulfillment. We can improve our physical health that way when we stop measuring it and objectifying it from the outside We improve our relationships with other people, including romantic relationships, when we are inside our own bodies and able to fully connect with another human being. Mm -hmm. All of this is improved when we stop looking at our bodies as objects and projects to be fixed and instead come back to them as our home, regardless of how they look. Mm -hmm. This possibility of flexing the muscle and building the muscle of body image resilience to make that choice every time we face a body image disruption and it gets easier over time. That's the wonderful thing about it. It becomes second nature and more innate to say, 
No, I'm not going to try to fix and hide my body and go on another yo-yo diet or plan my next cosmetic procedure. Instead, I can choose to use my body as an instrument for my use, my experience, my benefit. I can be grateful for it. I can be compassionate toward it and toward everyone else's choices for their bodies and use this for my benefit to find my purpose and meaning that is so much bigger and broader than how I look in this moment. And I think Mm -hmm. that's where the real empowerment comes in. And Lindsay has taught me this. I mean, as we've developed this body image resilience model, we've put it to use in our own lives. And yet for many years, I feel like Lindsay has been my best example. Oh, that's nice. I feel like despite, yeah, (laughs) I feel like despite the fact that you've been bigger than me for a few years now, you'd think that that would make you less confident, you know, if we're like comparing ourselves. And yet you have been more confident than me consistently. You have been able to react to painful experiences in your life in ways that have taught me that I can do the same. And it's been, that's nice. Yeah. It's, I hadn't thought about it until I was thinking about this interview and thinking about how our body image experiences have kind of informed each other. But from the beginning, you have been able to go through hard stuff and tell me that you can be better for it. You've just, you've shown me resilience again and again. Like when we were asked to do our Ted talk and it could only be one of us, they wouldn't have two of us on the stage. It was Uh like, yes, we fought about who was going to do it, but I knew I was going to let you do it. (laughs) (laughs) And Lindsay hit it out of the park. It's a beautiful Ted talk. Thank you. That's so nice. It was on our birthday, sitting in that big, that big auditorium, and they sang happy birthday to Lindsay on the stage, and she got a standing ovation at the end of her talk. Yeah. And I was so proud of her, and it instilled a new sense of confidence in me that was just, I don't know, I think we've done that for each other. I think yeah. we've been able to help each other, but you have definitely been an example to me of how to rise with resilience. I know what you mean. That's so nice to hear. And I think it's like you say, when I go through the hard things that it shows you that, you know, you'll be fine too and can build resilience. I think even more prominent in my mind is going through good things and showing you and other people that my weight or, you know, beauty or lack thereof or whatever was not a barrier to the good things that I've wanted in my life. Yeah, that's true. I think that's where one of the important pieces is, is like, we all Mm -hmm. grow up with these myths about who deserves to be loved and who deserves to be happy and to be confident and, you know, to, to make choices for their lives, regardless of what they look like. And I've learned through trial and error, and most importantly, through breaking down those barriers in my own mind, through my choices, that I can be happy and loved and confident and all of the other good things that I want successful and healthy, regardless of what I look like. So mm-hmm. I may have thought my whole life that in order to live in New York City and to be happy and confident mm-hmm. here, that I would need to be thinner. I thought that my whole life, but I decided to do it anyway. And I was able to prove to myself and to everybody else that thinness isn't a prerequisite for happiness or being desired or having, you know, a good love life and a a happy career and whatever else. And I think that has been one of the ways that I've built resilience is just through 
testing those boundaries of where I thought that I would be too embarrassed to do something. Yeah, that's so true. Seeing you date, hearing about all of your romantic ventures has been both entertaining and exhilarating. <laughs> but also just like, I'm not living that life. Like I'm married and we have definitely gone separate ways, which I, has healed our relationship completely. Yeah. Um, but being able to see you do all that stuff has been like, I don't know, it's confidence boosting for me too. I'm not the one out there, but I'm really excited for you. <laughs> yeah, I see it reflects on you as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lindsay, you were, you were making a really important distinction, which is it's not just being able to like rise from difficult stuff, no matter the body you're living in. It's also being allowing yourself to receive the good stuff, no matter the body you're living yeah. in. That's a really important distinction. It's not just the moving through shame or moving through hurt or moving through sadness. It's allowing ourselves to have our happiness, not be contingent on the body, like, like letting ourselves receive yeah. in the right. body that we're in, even if it's not the body that we feel like we should be in or the deserving body. That's a really yeah. important point. I think it really is prioritizing how I experience my life and the world as opposed to how the world experiences me and my body. Yeah. And that's where I I feel so much more flexibility and being able to make choices that some people might think of as brave. And in mm -hmm. reality, it, I'm not a perfect example by any means, but I've been able to have a good few years, especially once I really broke away from my previous life in Utah and living in New York has just given me an opportunity to prove to myself that I can make different choices and be really confident in those choices and, you know, happily do so mm -hmm. regardless of how I look. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of you said just a moment ago that the pretty dramatic difference right now in terms of your relational stage, that Lexi is married with two kids and Lindsay is living in New York City and exploring her dating life. And one of you mentioned that that has been really healing for your relationship. Say, say more about that. Like, what is the impact of these really different relational contexts that you're both in right now? That differentiation that happened nine years ago when I got married was amazing for us because one of these things that comes up when you're dealing with body image burdens, like I talked about, is that what it really comes down to is wanting love and yeah. wanting to be loved. And so, as we were both dating, we were competitive. We tried to date a couple of the same boys. <laughs> like, <all of> that <laughs> a happened. couple of the same boys tried to date us. We may or may not have kissed a couple of the same boys and hated each other for it instead of the guy. You know, oh, come on. Yeah. All of that happened. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. yet it was when our lives really took separate paths where we were no longer competing. And I witnessed Lindsay be genuinely happy for me. When I got to a point where I always thought I was incapable of being loved, you know, even when I was years down this path, the year I got married, the year before we graduated with our PhDs. So we were far into this research, yeah. this body image resilience stuff, but you know, even body image experts are dealing with body image issues and mm -hmm. that's just the name of the game. And body image resilience is built on that fact that we're all going to always be facing these disruptions. I, when I got married, it was like, it was astounding to me that I could be loved. And it was really amazing to have Lindsay be so genuinely excited for me mm -hmm. and to love my husband. Mm -hmm. Like to really think he's great. And you guys have bonded so much. I do. I think that is the key factor here. Lexi has the most wonderful husband. And it's been awesome for me to see 
Lexi and her husband have a really fantastic nine-year relationship through all kinds of life changes and body changes and everything Mm -hmm. else. It is kind of comforting to me to see those types of things while I'm here dating and having hits and misses and everything else. But I do think it took away that element of competition with us. And instead, it's been really exciting for us to be able to have babies in our relationship. Like Lexi, I went to the doctor with Lexi for (laughs) one of her first visits with her first baby. So this was like six years ago. And the nurse came in, it was just me and Lexi, her husband couldn't come for some reason. The nurse came in and was talking to Lexi and doing the ultrasound. And then she said to me, do you have kids? And I said, nope, this is our first. This is our first. (laughs) And I didn't even I didn't even flinch. This was our baby. And so (laughs) I still feel that way. I love them so much. And it's just added a new element to my life where it's not like I'm lacking anything. I gained two nieces and like a cool brother-in-law into my life. That's been cool. Yeah. Yeah. And how neat that that difference between the two of you, I think this is such a, you know, it's so common for women in general to compete over male attention and male affection. It's one of the, prim, you know, one of those sort of like hallmarks of the patriarchy, right? One of the like yes. central operating systems of the patriarchy is female competition over male attention and male right. affection. And so, of course, like, you know, friends play that out with each other. So, of course, twins would play it out with each other. And there's a way in which even though you have in that respect more difference between the two of you and what your lives look like right now, it has made a space for a deeper kind of closeness between the two of you. It has. It's allowed us to both in some ways experience the possibilities of two different pathways for our lives. Like if I were living this life married, I would be living Lindsay's life. She's been able to do this thing that could see. And in that way, being a unit has really expanded the possibilities of our lives. Yeah, we do kind of get to see like some of the best of both world elements. I was actually just saying to Lexi the other day, we talk on the phone at some point every day. Sure. And we were talking about, oh, I was saying how like I'm on kind of a a break from dating because it just got so annoying for a little while. There were, you know, it all the dating stuff is so frustrating. Uh-huh. I was so sick of the app. So I decided I'm taking a little break, just a couple months off. Yeah. And so I was hanging out with friends this weekend. I had a couple days just totally to myself. I went to a movie by myself. I, you know, slept in, I did whatever I wanted, went for a long walk. And I was saying to Lexi how like, yeah, I'm just doing whatever I want. And it's great. And Lexi was <laughs> saying that she's so exhausted and the kids are sick and they got to go do a family thing and mm-hmm. whatever, all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, we we do have extremely different lives right now. But I said, it doesn't mean that mine is necessarily better. They're just really different. And mm-hmm. I think the best case scenario would be to have a little bit of both, like of the flexibility that I have, but also of like the structure and the family life that Lexi has. And I get a little bit of that through her, which is great. Right. right. Totally. Right. It's something I feel like I talk a lot about in my work is how every choice we make or every sort of transition in our lives has an attendant grief and loss to it, right? Like when we choose this path, it means we're not choosing that path. But there's yeah. this really kind of interesting way in which you guys get to be, you get to have both paths right now that Lexi yeah. gets to have yeah. a front row seat to Lindsay's dating adventures and Lindsay gets to have two little babies who are, you know, who are dear to her heart. Mm-hmm. Lindsay gets to be completely traumatized watching me give birth. That's true. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's Yep. A thing. Holding a leg. Yeah. <laughs> check that box for myself. Hoping yep. for the best. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> but Lexi is coming to visit in a couple of days, so she'll get to have a little bit of the New York life away from the kids. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, um, before we start to move towards wrapping, when one of you is experiencing a body image disruption, do you talk to the other one about it? How do you talk about it? Like, what are those moments like in your relationship? Oh, yeah. Lindsay has helped me out more than once. One time pretty recently, it was similar to what you were talking about, Alexandra, where when you're with family, that's when your self-comparison and self-objectification ramps up. Yeah. So I had a baby right before COVID. So I kind of hibernated for like two years, you know, mm-hmm. it was amazing working from home, all of that. And then I was getting together with my husband's family who are great, who are non-competitive, who build me up, who are don't objectify each other in any way. And yet I was feeling such anxiety about how tight my jeans were. Mm-hmm. I feel like I need to wear jeans with them because they're casual people. We were out in the country, but they were tight. And I said to Lindsay, as far as I have come in my body image journey, I'm nervous about how bad my cellulite shows on the back of my legs. And mm-hmm. she said, uh, you said something that I just, said, who cares? Yeah. You, <laughs> why do you care what they think about your cellulite? Like they love you and your husband loves you and you're going to go have a fun, relaxing weekend. Who cares? And I was kind of blunt about it. I wouldn't be that way with somebody else, but I think it kind of worked. It worked. It was just, it got uh... me, it shook me out of that place where I have to live to be looked at to realize who cares. cares. There is no world in which them seeing me and judging me and seeing my fat could result in anything bad for me. I love that. I love yeah. There's no tangible bad thing that could happen. And I think that just rings so true to this idea that we have to prove ourselves wrong. Like Lindsay wrote this part in the last chapter of our book about proving yourself wrong. And she has helped remind me again and again that Our anxiety lives in our minds, but it is not reality. And Mm -hmm. every single one of us withhold pleasure, withhold enjoyment, experiences from ourselves, not because anybody else told us we don't deserve it. I mean, sometimes they do, Yeah, you know, but most often it's internalizing this idea that in order to experience good, we have to look a certain way that I have to be able to meet a certain expectation, a weight, a size, a whatever, in order to do the thing I want to do or leave the house, whatever, you know? And it's been so helpful for me that Lindsay has reminded me to continue to prove myself wrong. And she, now I repeat that in every podcast interview that it is deeply important that we realize that body image suffering only worsens when we sit on the sidelines of our lives, planning for when we can qualify to be seen. We are only suffering more. But when you just get up anyway, when you leave the house anyway, when you do the thing anyway, your resilience and your confidence Mm -hmm. increases dramatically because you have just shown up and you do prove yourself and your anxiety wrong every time. That's that's what Lindsay has taught me. (laughs) When you share, Lexi, that um, your struggle with the genes with Lindsay and Lindsay's response is who cares? And you're right, like the context of that matters so much because in another relationship, who cares could be profoundly like invalidating, right? Right, But in the context of this relationship, you know, between the two of you, like that was exactly the right comment. It's what the Gottman's, John Gottman is a relationship researcher, what he calls positive sentiment override. Like there's so much love and trust between the two of you that you can do one of these shortcuts, right? That in another 
context would feel mean or thoughtless or invalidating. Like in this context, it's like just the positive sentiment between the two of you like overrides the words themselves. And it like is just the right medicine for Lexi's body image disruption. Yes. Mm -hmm. I remember one time I was getting ready to go on a date. I guess dating is a real key component of how I'm thinking about things right now, but it is one of the big differentiating factors between us. This was many years ago, but I was getting ready to go on a date and Lexi was in my apartment and I was trying on clothes and I just couldn't find anything to wear that I felt comfortable in. And I remember Lexi just saying to me, she would give me feedback on the clothes and it was just like, oh yeah, that looks good. Whatever. Like, you know, you're going to be outside. You're going to keep your coat on anyway. And it was again on the same tone of like, you look great. He's lucky to be there with you. We don't even know that he's such a catch. It was just this realistic kind of straightforward advice while on the same time reminding me like you're more than a body and yes. your your personality and you know being a dynamic and engaging person is much more important of a factor when you're actually having a conversation with this guy than when you're just browsing through the app looking at photos or whatever we have a nice ability to just cut to the core of things and get a little more grounded in reality. But I I actually think that's helpful for everyone who's going through this body image stuff because it does get built up into such a dramatic thing in our minds so often when in reality, when you can push yourself and kind of break through those barriers for yourself and test it out, you might have a really good time. You might actually build confidence from doing something that you were afraid you'd be too embarrassed to do. We've heard so many success stories from people who just went and did it anyway and actually had an amazing time and learned from then on. I can go do whatever I need to do and actually have a fun time doing it. Right. Well, yeah. Anxiety's favorite thing to do is keep us from experience, right? Anxiety says you can't move towards that experience. You have to hide. And so when we do hide, anxiety wins and anxiety gets bigger and stronger and a more formidable enemy then because we just caved, right? We just gave anxiety what it wants. And so you both are making that point. It's not about overriding or pushing ourselves. It's about reframing and then making sure that we like land the experience. So we go out in jeans that are snug and bootylicious. <laughs> and then we say like, oh my gosh, I am as loved as I've ever been. I belong in this family as much as I ever have. I loved whatever, the hayride or the walk or the crisp air and all of those like to be yeah. intentional about landing all of those elements that have nothing to do with our body or with our genes. Like that's how we then become victorious or reclaim something that really is our birthright, right? We all- yeah. My gosh, we all just deserve to to live in our bodies, and I mean, I just I love the instrument, not ornament, right? Our bodies are instruments for getting us into connection and giving us experiences and giving us pleasure and all of that. Yeah, exactly. While I've got you here, I really want to make sure that we touch on sort of what are some first practices? If somebody's listening to this love story conversation and they're obviously touched by the experience of who you are as sisters and your journeys, but if what they really want to take away from this are some kind of early practices around healing body image and developing body image resilience, are there some practices that have meant a lot to the two of you that your research has really shown are potent kind of good gateway kinds of practices. Can you give us a a couple of those? Yeah, definitely. We talk about things in terms of being able to see more and then being able to be more because one of the first steps is just awareness of 
what has contributed to the way you feel about your body and what continues to contribute to that and build this map of what you think points directly to confidence and happiness and health and everything else. So there's a lot of things that do contribute to that map in our media environment, but also in our interpersonal and cultural environment. So we recommend that people really stop and take a look at how do you feel about your body right now? Like literally write down your answer to that question. How do I feel about my body? Then go back and look at that answer and see, is it positive or negative? What kinds of words are you using? Mm -hmm. Are you primarily focused on how you look or are you focused on how you feel and how you experience the world through your body? For most women, we're going to be talking a lot about how we look and we'll be using pretty negative terms. So that's where you see the self-objectification cropping in. When we can see that we're self-objectifying and feeling negatively, we can usually point back to some experiences and some messages that would contribute to us feeling like we're too big, we're too old looking, our skin is too dark or too pale, our hair texture is not right, right. we look old. You know, every different thing in our culture, there are new flaws that are being created, invented for us every day, and then they sell us the solutions right alongside it. Yep. So take a look at the type of images that you are being exposed to, whether voluntarily or um, involuntarily throughout your day. What do the bodies look like in the media that you are regularly consuming? Mm-hmm. What do the people look like who you're friends with, who you're surrounded by? Do you have much body diversity in your life? Or are you primarily seeing bodies that just look one way and are prioritized for being thin, for being young, for being white, all of these other things that yeah. are so crucial in our, our media definition of beauty? How do the people around you talk about bodies, their own bodies, other people's, even celebrities? Is there a lot of conversation about bodies and weight-centric beliefs about bodies and people's worth. I know for so many of us, there really is. And so that can really help illuminate what has created um, your body ideals and the things that you're holding yourself up to. And once you can see it, that's your opportunity to be more, be Mm -hmm. more media literate. When you can be critical and questioning of the images that you see to see how unreal they are compared to real life, that can help to alleviate some of the stress and the pain around trying to live up to those ideals. And then of Mm. course, diversify and curate your intake of media, whether it's Mm. um, entertainment media, streaming stuff, or through social media. When Mm -hmm. we can be exposed to images that are uplifting messages that don't revolve around beauty and the other things that we are actively, you know, comparing ourselves to, then that takes away a lot of the triggers that will continue to be in our faces every single day, all day, every day for some people, um, if we're not careful. Yeah. The one I would share, you know, we've talked about our mantra, my body is an instrument, not an ornament. But what does that really mean? When we get back inside our bodies and prioritize our lives, not how other people are prioritizing our appearance, that means that our health and fitness goals need to become more personal. Mm-hmm. Right now, most women's health and fitness goals, the goals they set for themselves are purely aesthetic. They have to do with how their bodies appear, the size of their bodies, the look of their bodies. What we know from research is that when you can shift your paradigm into my body is an instrument, not an ornament, you will be more successful in attaining health and fitness and Mm -hmm. keeping it up. Because when you set a fitness goal that has to do with your aesthetics, with how much you weigh, how you look, it is very easy to not meet that goal or to not feel like you have met that goal and then to throw it all aside, to be super sedentary, to binge and restrict and binge and restrict in an endless loop that we live our whole lives 
um, in that, you know, that binge and restrict cycle. Instead, if you can really see your body as an instrument, that means you have to change the way you move your body. You need Mm -hmm. to be more intuitive and less punishing. Mm -hmm. You find things that you like to do and you do them. As you do the thing you want to do, as you set goals that are related to your experience, how much weight do you want to lift? How many dance classes do you want to take this month? How many times do you want to go on a walk this week with friends, with your mom, with your dog? Mm -hmm. Whatever the thing is that is experience-oriented, as you do it, as you build up your confidence, your self-efficacy, your strength, your health actually improves in real ways because Mm -hmm. health is determined internally. It's your blood sugar, your blood pressure, your cholesterol. It's your heart rate. It's your blood panel. It is in these ways that you actually live a better, happier, healthier life by prioritizing your experience in the world. And as you do it, those endorphins rush to tell you, you are good. You are more than a body. It is huge for building body image resilience that we help people see that fitness needs to be more personalized than the Mm -hmm. depersonalized, objectified way we have been sold. It changes everything. And then fitness becomes a celebration. It's a celebration and a spiritual practice rather than something. And and then it's sustainable, right? Then it becomes part of our lifestyle rather than this thing we have to do in order to just stop the chatter in our heads about, you know, who, yeah. Yep. Okay. Last question for you. I, I would love for you to speak for a moment to any parents who are listening with twins in their lives or aunties and uncles or teachers, like people who've got twins in their lives, like what would you want to whisper in their ear about how to talk to young twins, little twins, adolescent twins? Like what are kind of, what are some things you want people who love twins (laughs) to keep in mind? I would recommend, I mean, this is obvious hearing the first part of our conversation, but to limit the comparison language. I think separating twins when possible is really helpful. Like if they have an opportunity to be in different classes at school or on different sports clubs or in different hobbies and things like that, it gives kids an opportunity from an earlier age to differentiate, to find their own identity and to know that they are valued with or without their counterpart along with them, Um, especially if they look really similar and are constantly being compared. It's just really helpful to help them see themselves as an individual and to avoid comparison language and even intervening. I think sometimes Mm -hmm. when like you're in a big family setting or you're at church or school and people are doing the scanning and the up and down and the comparison for a parent even to interject or to get ahead of something like that. And to say, we're trying really hard to remind them that they're very different and to not do the comparison thing. So Lexi's wearing the green shirt today and Lindsay's wearing the black one just to to avoid those types of things. I think that can spare some embarrassment and some self-consciousness for young twins in your lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I think being cognizant of the fact that self-objectification happens for everybody at a young age, that splitting of your identity to monitor yourself can help parents of twins and all parents to watch for when you see your kid split from themselves, whether it's a twin that is constantly comparing themselves to the other twin, you'll see their mood change. You'll see that they're fighting. They're competitive about these things. You'll hear it. You'll witness it. Um, But it also happens for untwinned people, for just individuals. Mm -hmm. It's so important for us to witness when we see our kids start to feel more defined by how they appear than who they are. 
you see them split from being able to be in that flow state, being able to be creative, to play without distraction, to feeling more self-conscious of what they're wearing. That's a big one that comes up Yeah, um, where they get really self-conscious about what they're wearing, what they're not wearing, how they look in the moment. They get self-conscious of their weight as they're growing. I think it's deeply important for parents to be very aware of that and to start early on to have conversations with, with their kids where they speak openly about the fact that body diversity is good, that all mm-hmm. kinds of diversity are good. In this case, we're talking about the fact that bodies come in a spectrum of sizes, that bodies change, that they always will, that your body will change, that your child's body will change, that we are more than our bodies mm-hmm. is absolutely integral to being able to help kids develop early body image resilience. Yes. Thank you so much for all of those really helpful tips and tools there at the end. Okay. So if, so if there are folks who are listening who don't know about your work and how to dive more deeply into all of what you're doing, where do you want people to find you? Our book is the first thing we want people to go toward. It's Mm -hmm. by far the most exciting thing we've ever been able to do. Um, (laughs) So our book is titled More Than a Body, Your Body is an Instrument, Not an Ornament by Lindsay and Lexi Kite, PhD. And that is available in hardcover absolutely everywhere. Um, It'll be available in paperback uh, starting at the end of December 2021. And you can find it on Audible, on ebook or Kindle. And we're on Instagram at beauty underscore redefined. And our website is morethanabody.org. We offer an online course and some other content there. But we'd love for people to come find us and read the book. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Lexi. I really so appreciated getting to spend some time with you and get to know you better. Thank so you. Fun. Thank you so much. I want to thank Dr. Lindsay Kite and Dr. Lexi Kite for opening up in this space about the ups and downs of life as identical twins and all of the wisdom that this has brought them. I hope that you will pick up a copy of their book, More Than a Body, at your favorite independent bookseller. You can also find links to their book and their other work in our show notes. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.